I wonder uh, if anyone here knows the story of Juan Bobo. Anyone know Juan Bobo? We know a couple back here. Is this a Puerto Rican tale? I think it is. Juan Bobo is this little guy. Uh, so Juan is John, and Bobo is like a, a word that at least Puerto Ricans use to refer to, hey, Daryl, this feels like really hot for, for, for what we're doing here. Can we bring that? Thanks. And so uh, Bobo is like this word that you can use like when you're really tired and you're kind of out of it, or it could be someone who's not very bright. And Juan Bobo was not very bright. This little boy, oh, poor guy, he, he grew up with a very, in a very poor family. He and his mother were living up in the mountains, and, and they didn't have food. So Juan Bobo goes down to the village to get some work, and he goes to the, the vendor, the shopkeeper, and he says, I'll work for you. He says, oh, sweep the floor. So he sweeps the floor, and um, Juan Bobo is given, uh, he's given some milk to take home, but he, he kind of puts it in his hand and tries to get home with the milk in his hand, and of course all the milk falls out. And his mother says, oh, Juan Bobo, we needed that milk. Why did, why did you do it this way? And she says, next time, you know, put it in a pail, right? So then he goes back, and he works for the shopkeeper again. Sonia's already grimacing. I'm sure I've got all the details wrong. But she goes back to the shopkeeper, and the, the shopkeeper says, you've done such a great job. Here's a chicken. It's a live chicken. And he puts it in the pail, and he's walking home. Of course, the chicken runs off. Runs. He says, Mother, why did you do that? You, next time, put a string around the chicken and walk it home. So he goes back to the shopkeeper, and the shopkeeper gives him work to do. He does, the, does such a great job. He's a hard worker, dedicated. He's trying his best. The shopkeeper says, you've done such a wonderful job. Here's a, here's a ham. So he rags, rags, uh, ties the string around the ham and drags it home. And on the way home, all the dogs come and eat the ham. And, oh, Juan Bobo, what are you, you know? And, and he just has this way of getting every single thing wrong, no matter how hard he tries. Can you guys relate to Juan Bobo? In your Christian life, can you relate to the idea that you try so hard to do everything right, and it seems that like no matter what you do, it turns out the wrong way. Man. And I think most of us do not have the same perseverance that our friend Juan Bobo has, because at the end of the story, of course, he, he, uh, in, in this story, he, his foolishness uh, brings health and, and revitalization to a rich man's daughter, and that rich man provides food for the family for the rest of their lives, because he brings his daughter out of depression. But, you know, a lot of us, we don't stick through that far. And sometimes we don't see the, the other side of it. And, and I think we can get discouraged. Anyone get discouraged trying to live this life of faith? Well, that's what Paul's talking about today in Romans 7. I really want to do the right thing, and the wrong thing happens. And I don't want to do the wrong things, but they happen anyway. And as we have been looking uh, through Romans, going through Romans together, and we get to this passage, I find that this is one of those passages that uh, not only is it, can it be somewhat discouraging. Has anyone read this passage and you walked away discouraged instead of encouraged? Yeah. Uh, but it's often we can misunderstand even what he's getting at here. And so I kind of gave away my, my end here by putting the title up, this is where we're going to land. Because oftentimes, we think of this passage in Romans 7 uh, as, and does anyone ha have in their Bible like a heading over this section that says like the struggle with sin or something like that? Yeah. Some have the law and the sin, but some, they say the struggle with sin. 
And there's been a lot of confusion and controversy and debate around this passage of what's going on here. And what I'd like to do is I'm going to read part of it for you, and then I want to talk about that controversy a little bit and then get back to, to what it is that, that I think God has for us today in this passage. So starting in verse 7, uh, Paul, talks with, Paul starts with this question. And, and the question is, uh, he had just made a statement that uh, uh, he had been talking about dying to sin and being alive to Christ, that we were no longer under the mastery of the slavery of sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness, slaves to God, slaves to obedience. And he says this in verse 6, By dying to once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so Paul has been kind of developing this argument about the law. Because remember, Romans, from the very first chapter, is all about how, by faith, the righteous will live. So Paul has been contrasting living a life of faith with living a life under the law. And when he talks about law in this passage, he's talking specifically in this moment about the law of God, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, the Torah. He doesn't always use law that way in the book of Romans, but he does here. And so when he says we've been kind of released from the law, it might give people the impression that the law is bad. So he asks this question in verse 7. What shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. And I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And, but what I, I have, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. We're just going to pause there. There's this big question about this passage as Paul's writing, and the question is, in Paul's struggle with sin that he's describing here, is this before he comes to Christ? Is this after he comes to Christ? Is he describing someone who is still, still uh, under the slavery of the law, or is he talking about someone who's not under the slavery of the law? 
and it gets pretty, it gets pretty difficult because it seems like he's talking about someone who's mastered by sin, right? Someone who has not yet died to the slavery of sin. Someone who has not found the freedom that we sang about a couple of weeks ago and read about in the last couple of weeks. The freedom from sin, the freedom for righteousness that Paul is promising in the gospel for believers. And so we think, well, maybe this is him before he comes to Christ. And he even says these words in verse 14. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Can that be describing a believer? Challenge is that he talks about how he's a person who's wanting to do what's right, that he believes the law of God is good. He says in verse 21, I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's laws. Do unbelievers delight in the law of God? I don't, I don't think so. He says, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. And again, we're going to stop there for now. I think the big challenge of this passage is that when we consider that this is Paul describing a believer's struggle with sin or an unbeliever's struggle with sin, it just, the pieces don't all line up. Right? So believers aren't joyfully delighting, I mean, unbelievers are not joyfully delighting in the law of God, and he had just said that believers are no longer slaves to sin. But if we begin to see this as someone's struggle with the law, and rather their struggle with sin, we're going to find that all the pieces fall into place. And here's the thing. Paul did not write Romans to tell people how to not live under sin. Paul wrote Romans to try to tell people how to not live under law. This is what he's been arguing from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 7 that he's going to expand on in chapter 8 and then he's going to flesh out in the rest of the book. Paul is telling believers, you are no longer alive to the law. You are no longer under law. You will never please God by obeying the law. You must only and can only relate to God through faith. And that's the big contrast that Paul is setting up right here in Romans 7. And what he's arguing, arguing is that when you're a believer and you continue to put yourself under law, then by definition, you are putting yourself back into sin. He's saying, don't fight the sin. Don't fight your relationship with sin. Fight the relationship with the law. So I want to kind of come back through this and pick up on some points. Um, there's another thing that shows up here, and I love the NIV. I love this translation of the Bible. One of my least favorite translations that the NIV has chosen to do is that they trans translate this word, the Greek word is sarx, which we often translate as flesh. It translates as sinful nature. And the reason I don't like it is it's a little misleading, and we're going to talk about that as well. Uh, 
I'm sorry, this will be dense. It's Paul's fault, not mine. Fair enough? Okay. So, just to recap something that we looked at last week, most of us have this very common misconception. Most of us believe that the law will limit sin and that if we live too much under grace, whatever that means, too much by faith, too much by grace, then that will free us to sin more. If you missed last week's sermon, go check it out online. But the whole point was law increases sin and grace decreases sin. Under the law, we are bound to sin. And under grace, we are set free from sin. And so we are no longer um, obligated to sin. But now we are free to be righteous. And so, but we carry this misconception with us. And there's a reason that we do. Because it's just in the air that we breathe, right? Every group of people develops rules and regulations to keep people in line and to keep order, right? So when you found a nation, what's the first thing you do? You create laws. When, you form, uh, when, when this church was formed 180 years ago, they created rules, they created a constitution, they created laws. Uh, if you start a motorcycle gang, you're going to have rules, whether they're spoken or unspoken, and you will force people to live by those rules or you will kick them out of your bicycle gang. Like, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're a, a, you know, a music group, uh, uh, the mafia, the United States government. Every one of them has rules and they all enforce them to keep people in line, right? And we believe that if we have those rules, then people are more likely to do what they need to do. Now, we believe that. We believe it desperately and we want to believe it. Because it seems like it makes sense and it aligns with everything that we try to do. And Paul's saying, guys, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because of this thing called the flesh or the sarks in Greek. The flesh is what the NIV translates to sinful nature. And he says in here, he says, you know, uh, I... In verse 18, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. The problem is Paul uses this word flesh at least six different ways in the book of Romans. That's helpful, isn't it? If anyone ever tells you, when Paul uses the word flesh, it means X, Y, Z, then they're wrong At least uh, they're only getting 20% of it right, at the best. Paul uses the word flesh to refer to your human body. Paul uses the word flesh to refer to humanity. Paul uses the word flesh to refer to animals. Paul uses the word flesh to refer to uh, neutrally kind of like aspects of the world. Jesus came in the flesh. It wasn't sinful for Jesus to come in the flesh, right? But then he uses the word flesh to refer to this kind of sinful aspect of humanity. He uses the word flesh also to refer to this very interesting dynamic that we have with the law. And in order to show you a little more clearly, there's one other passage where Paul uses the word flesh the same way he does here in Romans that's very helpful. And that's in Galatians chapter 3. And it says here in Galatians, Paul's almost the exact same argument. 
that he has in Romans, but with a different group of people, so it plays out differently. But he's saying, are you going to live by law, or are you going to live by faith? And what he says is this. Did you receive the Spirit, meaning did you come to faith in Christ? Did you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that was manifested in all sorts of ways, including uh, speaking in tongues, including doing miracles, including being led by God, having freedom from sin, having forgiveness? Did you receive this by works of the law or by hearing of faith? And this is a very wooden translation, a very strict kind of like direct translation. Meaning, did you do it by following the law, or did you do it because you heard a message and you believed it in faith? And the very next sentence is, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now finishing in the flesh? Are you now finishing in the flesh? And I actually forget how the NIV translates it here, but it translates it um, very differently. I'm just going to look because it, cause you, you're going to get there and you're going to read it. And they're like, this doesn't say flesh. <laughs> it says this. Um, oh, the updated NIV changed it to flesh. And the old NIV, <laughs> in the old NIV it said like uh, by human effort. I think that's what it said. You're doing it by human effort. But literally it says, are you doing it in the flesh? And so... It's really helpful to see this because you've got these uh, what you call pairings or coupling of ideas here in Paul. He talks about works of the law and faith, and then he talks about the spirit and the flesh. He's describing two different ways of living. One is by the law and by the flesh, and one is by the spirit and by faith. And what we see here is that the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, is the one who leads us into faith. And so by transition, the flesh leads us into the law. What do I mean by that? Well, the flesh is not simply just the sinful part of you. And by the way, uh, again, the flesh can mean the body, but it's not, Paul's not saying that you're, your sinful parts reside in your physical flesh. Okay, He's not saying that. There are certainly temptations that come to us through our bodies, and there are certainly weaknesses of our bodies, but the flesh is not our body. Okay, It's not our body. It's distinct from our body. But it is this proclivity to sin that we inherited from Adam. But, and so important, it's also something that leads us to the law meaning it leads us to desire righteousness through obedience to the law. So it's this twofold element. Oh, that's what I just said. The flesh is both our fallen sin nature, but it is also coupled with that our desire for law righteousness. So every time that you or I try to do things right by obeying the law, That is our flesh at work. Okay? That is your flesh saying, hey, that law looks really good. If we can just do that, if we can just do what that law says, then we will become righteous ourselves. And what God is saying is, I don't want you to become righteous yourself. Hear me out. I want you to receive the righteousness that I have for you. 
Now, to say that and stop there is to invite the exact criticism that Paul received. Well, then should we sin more so that grace may increase more? Well, then does it not matter what we do because we're under grace and faith and not under law? Does that mean we can do whatever we want? But the answer is, uh, if you ask that question, then you've both misunderstood law and you've misunderstood grace. Law increases sin. Grace decreases sin. To live under grace is, is to no longer be a slave to sin, but be a slave to obedience. But not through the medium of the law. Okay? All right, so let me illustrate this. Here we have our sinful flesh. I am really proud of this artwork. So if anyone wants signed copies, I can get it to you. Uh, here we are. We are in our flesh, which again, not just our body, but it's just written on his body. But do not identify the flesh with the body. They are different things. We're in our sinful flesh, and we're, we're pretty happy. And all of a sudden, we see a law. And that law says something like, Hey, Paul uses the example, don't covet. If you don't have something that's not, and someone else does have it, don't desire to have the thing they have for yourself. Not to mean you can't aspire to get your own, but don't, don't be desiring theirs, right? It's, seems fair enough. And our flesh says, ooh, a law. This is great. This means that I can become righteous just like God. Now, by the way, does anyone remember what the original sin in the Garden of Eden was? Eve saw the fruit, and she desired it. It was pleasing to the eye and to the taste, but it would make her like God. How would it make her like God? She could decide for herself good from evil. Bam. The original sin... And, and the ultimate challenge we have with sin is the exact same problem. We want to do what is only God's job to do. We want to become righteous on our own without his help. How are we going to do it? Well, let's use these laws. So the flesh is giddy and excited because here's the deal. In the flesh, each one of us craves laws. We crave them. We want them. And, you know, there's even some dynamics of this that we see play out. Like if you have children, um, you may recall that, at least for some of our children, they would do way better if they, if they knew exactly what was coming all the time. If they knew what the rules were, if they knew what the schedule was, if they knew all these things, then they could kind of relax and they could, they could get into it and just ease into it and they would be okay. And as soon as you get them out of the routine, if they don't know what to expect then all of a sudden they start acting crazy, right? They, start, um, they, they don't go to sleep when they're supposed to go to sleep. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They're, they're loud and, and rambunctious when they're normally calm because they, we like the routine. We do. We like knowing what to, to expect. And the same thing I hear all the time, like, you know, when someone, you enter a new job and you don't really know what the expectations are, what's required of me. And so you feel really anxious a lot of times, Right? Uh, and so what we do is we crave this order. We crave the rules. And yes, I know some of us hate rules. I get that. But even those of us hate rules have our own rules. We make rules for ourselves. 
even if they're contradictory to the rules of society or whatever organization we're in, because we crave rules. We need them. We want them. And so our flesh, <clears throat> our flesh is always hungry for laws. But the problem is, when your flesh gets a law, it turns it into sin. So think of it like your flesh, uh, think of it like physical. It craves things to eat. It eats them, and then it turns them into something else. Right? And those something else's are very smelly, very ugly, and not desirable. Right? So this is your spiritual digestive system at work. It takes something which is good, and it turns it into something which is gross. I was thinking about this this week, and, um, you know, this dynamic where Paul says the law is good. It's not that the law is bad, but it turns it into something else, right? Have you guys ever heard, I wrote it down because I knew I wouldn't remember, auto brewery syndrome? You guys heard of this auto brewery syndrome? I saw a documentary once about a guy who was going home from work and he got pulled over for drunk driving and they pulled him out and gave him a breathalyzer. He was like five times over the limit. And he, I didn't drink anything, I promise. I just came from work. And what had happened was that in his body, because of different uh, digestive issues, I think it's a fungus actually in your body or candida or something, um, any sugar that he ate would be turned into alcohol and immediately go into his bloodstream, and then he would be drunk. And it's very rare, but it does happen. You can't be born with it. It's something that develops, but children can get it. Adults can get it. There's multiple cases I found online of these people. They would have any kind of sugar, carbs, bread, snacks, whatever, and because of some change that happened in their digestive system, it would turn into alcohol, and they would be drunk. It's kind of like... It's kind of like the law and your flesh and sin because you start doing stupid things that you don't want to do, like when you're drunk. So you know what they do for people who have auto-brewery syndrome? They tell them you can't have sugar. They don't tell them stop acting drunk. They don't say quit getting tipsy. They don't say, hey, stop saying things you don't need, mean. They tell them, stop eating sugar. If you have an indwelling symptom or dynamic that turns law into sin, then telling someone to stop sinning doesn't help very much. You need to tell them, stop eating those laws. Stop going back to the law. Because the law turns it to sin in your digestive system. And it's not supposed to do that. It wasn't made originally to do that. But you've got this fungus called the flesh. You've got some problem that developed. And you know what? It's not even your fault. It was really Adam's fault. Adam gave you a fungus flesh that loves to eat law and turn it into sin. But if you cut out the law, then you cut out the sin. Now, that sounds really, really simple, right? I mean, it's like, oh, just cut out the law. That's what I'll do. I just won't worry about the law anymore. So I dare you 
I challenge you, I will put money. I, don't, I took all my money out of my pocket. I had money in my pocket this morning. I took it out. It's in my bathroom. But I will go get it, and I'll put it down here. I dare you go through the rest of this day without trying to live by the law. It's only like $8, but I will give it to you. <laughs> I will give you the money if you go the rest of the day without trying to do anything by the law. Let's reread this passage, remembering that our struggle is not against sin, but our struggle is with the law. And let's see what, it makes, what sense it makes to us. What shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. No more sinful than a piece of bread to a person with autobrewery sy- uh, syndrome. Bread is not sinful. Bread is not evil. Right? The law is not evil. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, meaning the sin that dwells within me, that part of my flesh that both, and we can go back to this, the part of my flesh that is both fallen and also desires law righteousness, Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. Apart from the law, sin was dead. That was that image we just had here. When we're dead to the law, we're dead to sin. Apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, I think Paul here is talking about when he first came to Christ. I don't think he's talking about before he came to Christ. I think he's talking, he said, I came to Christ and all of a sudden I had this joy and exuberance and excitement and I just wanted to follow Jesus. And that's all I worried about. It was just Jesus, me and Jesus and the people of God. Yes, the word of God. Yes, but it was me and Jesus and I was just walking with him and I was alive. I was alive. But then the commandment came and sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment came, and I fed my flesh. I fed it. I was like, hey, I remember you. I remember you from the old days. Would you like a meal? Here's some nice, juicy laws for you. Sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Again, I can't... I just love this illustration of this auto-brewery syndrome. Wonderful things like bread of, the bread of life, right? The bread of life turns, in, turns these people into, into, you know, they could get alcohol poisoning if they eat too much bread. The thing that was intended to bring life brings death. For sin, remember, this is that part of me that desires law righteousness, that part of me that is fallen because of Adam. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, it deceived me. It tricked me. I didn't know it was going to happen. And through the commandment, it put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Okay, well then, Paul, if you're saying the commandment's good but sin does this, does that mean that which is good then becomes death to me? Is the law killing me? He says, no. No, by no means. The law is not killing you. 
What's killing you is that you have this flesh that takes the law and turns it into something else. Bread doesn't kill you, but if you die in a car accident because you were drunk from eating a piece of bread, it's, it's the fungus in your stomach that did it, not the bread. Right? It's the flesh. It's the flesh that turns the commandment into sin that's killing you. However, nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, here's the thing. God knew you had flesh when he gave the law. If God gave the laws to the angels, they would have been fine. But he gave the law to us, knowing that we had in us this flesh, this sinful, fallen piece of us that also desires law righteousness. Why would God do that? Well, here's the thing. Do you know how, do you know that idea of like, sometimes you just need to hit rock bottom before you can start coming up? Has anyone experienced that, at least in some aspect in your life, in some point in your life? It's like you've got to hit rock bottom before you can come up. And remember how in chapter 1 God said that he was pouring out his wrath, and by pouring out his wrath he was actually handing people over to sin? You remember that? God gave the law knowing that we would continue, as Paul says, to be deceived. We're tricking ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We think that if we just have the law, we can be good people. And then God will accept us, and he'll accept us on our terms, and we'll have done it. So we will receive the glory. And God's like, I mean, he's not actually doing this because God already knew what he was doing, but he's like, hmm, what can I do to show them how bad they are? And showing them that, not only how bad they really are, Uh, but showing them that the very thing they think will help them is actually going to make them worse, but doing it with the intention that they would then come to me and receive all this goodness that they're not availing themselves of because they still think they can do it on their own. I know. I'll give them commandments. Yeah, God knew from the beginning. He didn't figure it out, but that's kind of like the idea, right? We read last week that... um, that the law was given so that trespasses might increase. We read in Romans 1 that God hands people over to more sin. And we read here that our flesh deceives us, and we think we're getting something good from the law, but we're actually getting death. It all fits together, folks. It's one message. It's not a bunch of individual passages. Paul is making a case that the function of the law is to make you more sinful so that it will drive you into the loving arms of Jesus in desperation and hopelessness in yourself so that you can have the greatest hope and expectation in Christ. Sin might be recognized as sin. It used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual. And when Paul says, I am unspiritual, what he's talking about is when my flesh is activated. And he's about to say something else that just contradicts completely everything he said in the last chapter. Sold as a slave to sin. So here's the thing. 
In your baptism, you died with Christ, and you died to sin, and you died to the law. And then, also in your baptism, you were resurrected with Christ, and you're alive to God, and you're a slave to God in obedience and righteousness. But he says in chapter 6, I believe it is, um, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? So when you offer yourselves back to obedience through law, you are putting yourself back under the slavery of sin. You're doing it. This isn't Adam's fault anymore. We're doing it. We've been freed from sin, and we go and we say, I'd like to obey the law again. And we think when we go to obey the law again, it's going to work out well for us. But it's not, because it puts us back into slavery to sin, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. It'd be like saying, if this person, again, this auto-brewery syndrome. If someone said, I don't want to get drunk, I just want to eat bread. And I keep thinking if I eat bread, it's going to be fine because everyone eats bread. So what, but every time I eat bread, I end up getting drunk. I don't want to be drunk, but I really like the bread. Do you see (laughs) this cycle? I don't want to be a slave to sin. I'm going to try harder by following these laws. Oh, now I'm in all this sin. I guess I should get out of it. Oh, I know. There's some laws. And it starts over and over and over. And it escalates. Because the more sin you're in, the more laws you need, which just gives you more sin than you need more laws. Right? If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Very simply, that means this. The very fact that he didn't want to do it was an acknowledgement that the law was right and good and true. He shouldn't have done it. But as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Okay, this is, this is a weird comment for us. Because as Christians, we're like, I need to take responsibility for what I've done, right? But I want you to turn to the person next to you and look them in the eye and tell them, it's not your fault. I know, do it. It's not your fault. It's the sin in you. It's the sin in you. It's like going to that person and saying, hey, you're really sloppy drunk right now, but it's not your fault. You didn't try to get drunk. You didn't even drink alcohol. Guys, you weren't going out. You didn't go out yesterday looking to see how much sin you could do, right? Who sinned yesterday? Which of those sins did you plan to do when you woke up yesterday morning? May, hopefully none of them. If you did, if you did plan to do them, let's just acknowledge that, hey, even that is a product of your brokenness and living out of the flesh and maybe even being so disappointed with your attempts at obeying the law that you've just given up. He says it's not even you who do it. But it's the sin living in you. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my flesh. See, sinful nature, flesh. Scratch it through. Even if you have a pew Bible, scratch it through and write flesh there. 
So you remember, it's not just that it's sinful, it's that it also desires law righteousness. It's this whole piece. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Man, that's like the, that feels like he's writing my diary. Like he's writing my own story. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. All right, turn to your neighbor again. You already told him it wasn't their fault. Now, here's the hard part. I get it. Yeah, just turn to your neighbor and say, I get it. This is, here's why this is important. We know that we don't want to do the horrible things we do, but our spouse does want to do the horrible things they do, right? And our kids definitely want to do, and our parents certainly want to do the horrible things they do. But no, that's not how it works. This is just gospel stuff here. This is where forgiveness for one another comes from. Understanding that we're all fallen, that we all have our flesh, that we all desire law and righteousness, that we all turn it into sin, and the horrible things we do to one another, you know what? I get it. It's not your fault. I do the same thing. I can give you the benefit of the doubt, and you can give me the benefit of the doubt because the Holy Spirit's telling you it's not you who did it. Okay? You have an out. But you have an out for the sin. So here's what you don't have an out for. No more bread. No more law. We have people in this church who have tried to not eat bread for health reasons. Gluten, uh, you know, whether it's celiac or sensitivity, uh, for dietary reasons, like, oh, I don't want the carbs, I'm on the whatever it is, the Atkins or the, or the paleo or the whatever, no bread. Do you know how hard it is to not eat bread? I do. Yeah. Especially in a world where everyone eats bread and bread smells so good. Guys, you are surrounded by a culture and a world and a society and a humanity that makes wonderfully good-smelling laws. And it serves them up to you at every possible occasion because it thinks that's what you need to get ahead in life. And it is wrong. It is so hard not to go back to the law. But that's the call. It's not to stop sinning. This is not about your struggle with sin. It's about your struggle with the law. So I find this law at work, verse 21. This is the law. I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. When he says, I see another law at work, it's not like he's saying there's these two competing law systems. He's saying there is the system of law that I delight in, but because of my flesh, the rule is that it turns into sin. 
So I don't see this as too, like, oh, if I just had the right laws, oh, that's what it was. I, was. I thought I was following God's law, but I was actually following a different law. I just need to get back to God's law. No. You have to abandon the law. You have to abandon law itself. What a wretched man I am. Why does he say that? For all the reasons we've been talking about. Bread smells so good. And with some butter, when it's freshly baked, and you walk in the house and it's like in the air, or you walk in the restaurant, like there's those special restaurants you go to and you don't even go for the meal, you go for the bread that comes before the meal. Like I really don't care about Bertucci's, but those rolls. (laughs) I could pass on the pizza. Amen. What a wretched man I am. You mean I've got to go through the rest of my life with no Bertucci rolls? No, none of that crusty bread with the oil and the garlic and the, and the seasoning and the, with, with some Parmesan on top? No, no, no. You've got to feel it, Ed. You've got to feel the pain of this. What a wretched man I am. You have to feel it. He's feeling it. Paul is feeling viscerally the challenge of his relationship with the law. Viscerally. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only Christ. Only the Holy Spirit. Only faith, only grace, only the gospel. And then what I think might be the most misunderstood sentence in this whole passage. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, in my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. And what we think is, ah, if we get our thoughts right, then we can be obedient, but our flesh keeps taking us out. It's not really what he's saying. He's saying, I think I'm a slave to God's law, but in reality, I'm a slave to sin. Every time, I, every time in my own mind, in my own heart, in my own spirit, when I delight in the law of God, I think, I think that I'm finally getting it right. But it's a trick. It's a deception. It's going to turn into death. It's going to turn into sin. This whole section started like this. Verse five, uh, chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God and our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Then he says that I died with Adam because Adam sinned, all sinned. But thanks be to God. Then I died to sin in Christ. And I was raised again in Christ. 
And it says, sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. He doesn't say sin shall not be your master because you're no longer under sin. He says sin shall not be your master because you're no longer under law, but under grace. And then he says, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now remember, what does the Spirit do? What does it mean to live by the Spirit? From Galatians 3, to live by the Spirit is to live by faith and not by law. Then Paul has this whole aside that we just read. And then he comes back to his argument in verse 8, chapter 1. Therefore. Not the therefore because that some people think therefore is because now in my mind I'm a slave to God's law. Finally, amen, hallelujah. No, therefore, therefore since I'm living by the new way of the Spirit, because this whole passage was like a parenthesis. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not your fault. I get it. You're not under condemnation. It's not you. It's sin in you. It took something that was good and righteous and holy and it turned it into death. It's not your fault. But you can't keep going back to that delicious law any longer. You have to starve your flesh. And what I mean by that is Don't give it law any longer. Don't give it law anymore. Paul is going to talk about the spirit and the law and the flesh all throughout Romans 8. And if we don't have this piece down, we're going to misunderstand almost everything he says about it. It is scary to not live by the law. Does this feel scary to anyone? Or, or and, and intimidating or anxiety inducing or like well if I don't if I can't live by the law what do I what am I going to do how am I going to know what to do does that mean you know what does that mean does that mean that when I have a decision to make then I just pretend I don't know what God says in His Word and just do whatever I want because otherwise I'm going to be sick? like what does it mean. It means not looking for the rules, but looking for the person. Not following the map, but following the guide. And it means not looking for your peace in your own obedience, but looking for your peace in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I put in the Wednesday email that there's no such thing as esoteric theology. Esoteric meaning like those ideas that are just out there that are not for the everyday person. Paul did not write this very difficult, dense, and complex passage of Scripture just for the people who went to seminary. He wrote it for every single one of us to inform how we live our life every single second of every single day. Is this complex and dense and hard to understand? Yeah. 
Even the Apostle Peter said, you know, Paul's writings, they're really hard to understand. But he's talking about everyday life. He's talking about the difference between you being bound in sin, even though you've been set free from Christ, or being free to walk in the righteousness, joy, and victory of the Holy Spirit. It's just basic, basic stuff. It's just really hard to to explain without being complex. But it's for every one of you, every one of us. Praise be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Oh, I have a takeaway. (laughs) I should at least put it up here. Um, There it is. Our flesh deceives us into thinking we can use the law to gain holiness. We cannot feed that monster because it only results in more sin and death. And then praise be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, this message to me feels both very specific and also uh, too big to to kind of like put hands on. Um, I know I myself leave today still wondering, okay, how do I do all this? But God, I know you're going to show us. You're going to show us next week, but you're going to show us as we practice it. Lord, as we just do the, the practice of being with Jesus, we will find the different reality that we can experience. Uh, as we simply ask the Lord, as we ask you, as we ask your Holy Spirit to guide us, we will find that he responds. And he leads us and shows us what to do and where to go, what to say and how to say it. But God, when we rely on ourselves, we find that it does not go the same way. So, Lord, we pray that you continue, because you've begun it already, but continue to break that very, very, very old desire that we saw in the garden, the desire to be like you when what you're calling us is to be with you. Or breaking us the desire to discern right and wrong for ourselves and restore the desire to receive the gift of your leadership Receive the gift of your, um, uh, just the way you communicate to us your own heart, your own holiness, your own will. And God, help us, help us, help us to not be deceived any longer and feed that monster. But instead be free from the entanglement of our flesh by starving it of its food and refusing to live under law any longer. In Jesus' name, amen.